We sat in the room, knowing history was new. What can you say that captures the dark moment but does not tip the drama scale? All you need is love. Episode 17. Greetings and welcome in. You have reached the Patuxet General, your connection for all things Patuxetish. This week, we continue our outward glance with a Parisian ghost story set in 1986, with a croissant recipe to match. One of the first soda drinks I was paid to make, and my test to run the cafe at Fellini's, the egg cream, as well as our continuing reading of the case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft as part of our House on the Corner series. But first, we would like to reach out to the Patuxent Village Townies, our Patreon subscribers. For as little as five bucks, you can donate to the podcast to keep us going. We are looking to expand to live shows this summer and could use the help. Knowing how tight these times are, we deeply appreciate every penny. For donating, you receive extra content, photos that go with the stories. You might even earn a mug with a Patuxent Village sunrise. Thank you again to the Townies themselves, and let's get started. This week's recipe, Croissant, the French story. Paris, 1986. By 1986, I thought I had seen it all as far as ghostly activity goes. I had been haunted nightly since I was a young teen, so I was scared of nothing. This was foolish. For the spooks that I had encountered here in the U.S. were young and powerless in comparison to the old entities of Europe, as I would find out in Warwick, England first, and then so much more deeply in Paris. A trip to Europe seemed like the opportunity of a lifetime. I worked two jobs while in college to pay for the trip. I paid in installments. My parents gave me a bit of cash, and I used it sparingly throughout the trip, but by the time I got to Paris, my budget was squeaky tight. Not enough for street cafes, but enough for street food for dinner. That said, the free continental breakfast was integral to keeping a budget and not to be missed. In all fairness, I felt eyes on me everywhere. From the moment I arrived in Paris, I actually felt hot under someone's gaze. But there was no one. I mean, my traveling companions, who mostly kept to themselves. We would all gather a couple of times a day to check in for safety's sake. But always I looked over my shoulder for the person watching me. The first night, my roommate in France was funny, sweet, and a great person. She was devout and silly, my favorite combo. We had traveled for the previous month through England and now had five days in Paris to relax from the British trip's coursework. I just wanted to get these eyes off me. The hotel in Paris was a spiral with an elevator that went through the center, full of wrought iron and well-oiled gears. To comply with fire codes, each floor's hallway was broken up with fire doors every 50 feet. And when they opened and closed, they made a distinct sound, a wheeze and a slam every 50 feet or so. My roommate R and I were a bit exhausted, broke, and a bit defeated on our first day. But we got a fabulous filling dinner at a street vendor two blocks away. A gyro, frites, lettuce, tomato, some sort of sauce, onions thinly sliced on a half loaf of bread, and settled in to watch French TV after locking, double locking with a deadbolt, the door. I had been in Europe for a month already and felt safer at the end of the corridor, which we were. 
with two locks, which we had, and two fire doors, one on each side of our room, which goes to the fire stairwell. R and I watch most of The Hunger in French and start to drift off. We turn off the TV, do our evening routine, and go to bed. Hours later, I wake up, but I can't move. I can hear the fire doors all along the corridor opening one by one. Footsteps, heavy footsteps, coming closer and closer. I know we're the last room on the floor. I keep thinking there's no reason for them to come down to us. Why not take the elevator to the next floor? My thoughts become more frantic and I realize that I'm staring at the door handle. In this hotel, the handle is only on the inside of the door. You turn a key on the outside, but the handle on the inside does not turn. R had teased me about setting the deadbolt as well, but it served us well. I can hear the footfalls one by one coming down the hall. Each door slamming, then the steps stop outside our door. My terror is unmeasurable. My heart is slamming in my chest. I look over at R to see her staring with wide eyes at me, and then at the door. The handle, impossibly, turns. We stare into each other's eyes and do not scream. We don't move. We just stare at each other and nothing happens. No steps go away, no doors open, nothing. How is that so? I'm frightened senseless, but after an hour or so, inexplicably, I fall asleep. In my dream, I can see home where my sister and mom is. In my dream, I'm standing in the living room, looking across the street. The house across the street has a living room window as well. And in that window, I see a man in a black suit, black hair, with a great creepy smile looking directly at me. I recognize this feeling as the gaze has been on me the entire time I've been in France. I hear my sister in the bathroom upstairs and sprint to the room. He laughs at me and rushes to beat me to her. I run up the stairs, burst in the door. My sister is looking in the wall-length mirror. I am behind her, but she does not see me. She sees him in the mirror. I am helpless. I am helpless as he grabs my sister and I am flung from the room. The next thing I know, I'm at the bottom of the stairs. My sister leaves the bathroom, looks at me with the same creepy smile as the man. I scream in my dream and in real life. And then silence. So does R. We sit up at the same time as the handle turns and then silence. We sit, looking at each other for what seemed like an hour. And when we're sure we're alone, we exclaim to each other in a rush what we both saw and heard. We do not share our dreams. We checked the locks and went downstairs for our first Parisian breakfast, well earned. Now let me tell you, by this time, we were well used to European breakfast. R and I made our way down for the very beginning of breakfast. If you were late, you missed out, and that was your only free meal. I sat at the long table with a bench, felt his eyes on me as I adored my espresso. R and I agreed that our destination today would be Notre Dame. Scared, hungry girls gulped down the breakfast before them, silently and gratefully before leaving the spiral tower for the golden warmth of Notre Dame. When I had dressed that morning, I tried to be nondescript, to be able to blend in with the crowd. Let me say, the feeling of being watched was palpable, like a heavy weight on me, making me slow and cold. Our trip to Notre Dame on the metro was fearful. I tried to disappear in my seat, 
while the fear being watched became oppressive. I could see that R's face was pale from her seat across the tram. I cannot express how oppressed the feeling was as we rode toward Notre Dame. When our stop came, we nearly fled to the church. When we arrived, I split off from the group. After we all paid for the tour and lit a candle, I said a prayer and felt lighter than I had in weeks. Now my adventure in Notre Dame, which took all day, is a tale within itself. But this story is about a breakfast so comforting that it gave us enough will and energy to make it all the way to Notre Dame. For that breakfast, we had a plain croissant, butter, strawberry jam, toast, first an espresso, and then a cafe au lait. I ate everything in front of me and asked for more. We were given toast and espresso and left to go on our way. The croissant itself was layered, but not as dark as Parisian-style croissant here. The flakes refueled my soul for the journey to the church. Based on Julia Child's method, this recipe is closest to what I tasted that day. May it give you the energy to fight the darkness. I call these quick croissants. You will need one ounce fresh cake yeast, one and one quarter cup warm milk, your preference, one third of a cup of sugar, two teaspoons of salt, four cups flour, plus a bit more for rolling, and one pound unsalted butter. The night before during winter, or an hour before in summer, take the butter out and put it in a mixing bowl to be softened in the morning, not melted. This is integral to the recipe. It must be softened and cool. In the morning, combine the first four ingredients, the yeast, milk, sugar, and salt, in your mixer bowl. Let it sit for about five minutes. It should foam a little. Add the flour and mix slowly until incorporated. Then beat on medium-high for about five minutes until it is smooth and elastic. At this point, I put the dough into a bowl with either loose plastic or a hand towel over the top and let sit until it's doubled in size. Now for the rolling. Hang in there, it's not that bad. This is the quick way, remember? Stick with me. So take that butter from last night and beat it for a minute or two just to soften it. With a little flour on your board, roll out the risen dough to the biggest square you can without fear of tearing. 11 to 14 inches is great. Gently spread the butter all over the square, leaving about a half an inch all the way around the edge. Now, fold in thirds vertically, like an envelope, and then into thirds horizontally. Wrap that firmly in plastic and place in the freezer. Leave the dough in there until firm, not frozen, about 45 minutes. When you feel it's not squishy inside, take it out and quickly roll into an 11 by 35 inch rectangle keeping it cool the entire time. Measure five inches on the bottom and cut from that to the top corner making a long thin triangle. Set that one aside. Then cut from there to the bottom corner to create another triangle and continue to the other side. You should end up with seven triangles. Take one triangle with the point in one hand and the wide part in the other and gently stretch. Then, starting at the wide part, roll firmly but gently to the tip and tuck it over. Do this to each and place them on a parchment-covered tray with at least five or six inches in between. Cover this with plastic wrap loosely with plenty of gaps. Then, let it set for two hours. 
Make the rest of the breakfast, I guess, or have a mimosa or four cups of coffee. I I don't know. Listen to a podcast. Anyway, they should rise double in size, then give them a little egg wash. I just whip one egg yolk and use that. Bake at 375 degrees for about 20 minutes or until dark golden, not burned. They will pull beautifully apart and will be done in about half the time and work of regular croissants. Enjoy. In 1991, I started working at the cafe, originally as a baker, and then as a counterperson, soon after as a manager. The first New York-style drink I had to learn was the egg cream. Right off the bat, it has no egg or cream. Now, I learned with glass-refillable soda bottles, some of which dated back to the 30s. I feel now, as I did then, that fresh soda water is more fun and works more effectively for fountain drinks. But in a pinch, bottled is definitely delicious. Traditionally, in New York, you bet vanilla or chocolate syrup is used. You can order this online or substitute another syrup to your own taste. One wild Yankee I met used maple syrup. Whoa, that sounds tasty. Let's move on to the actual recipe. Merriam-Webster says that this is one of the earliest recipes. This one from February 20th, 1897. For the egg cream. Four ounces evaporated milk. Four egg yolks. One ounce vanilla extract. Twelve ounces syrup. I... I don't want to try that. Let's just go with the way I learned. For this, you will need... Three tablespoons of Ubet syrup in a tall glass. Add three quarters of a cup of milk, your choice, and stir it. Then add seltzer to the top. It should foam up and be drank with a straw. Enjoy! I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. We would like to continue with our House in the Corner series, a reading of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft. Chapter 6. Not one man who participated in that terrible raid could ever be induced to say a word concerning it. And every fragment of the vague data which survives comes from those outside the final fighting party. There is something frightful in the care with which these actual raiders destroyed every scrap which bore the least allusion to the matter. Eight sailors had been killed. But although their bodies were not produced, their families were satisfied with the statement that the clash with customs officers had occurred. The same statement also covered the numerous cases of wounds, all of which were extensively bandaged and treated only by Dr. Jabez Bowen, who had accompanied the party. Hardest to explain was the nameless odor clinging to all the raiders, a thing which was discussed for weeks. Of the citizen leaders, Captain Whipple and Moses Brown were the most severely hurt. The letters of their wives testify the bewilderment with which their reticence and close guarding of those bandages produced. 
Psychologically, every participant was aged, sobered, and shaken. It was fortunate that they were all strong men of action and simple, orthodox religionists. For with more subtle introspectiveness and mental complexity, they would have fared ill indeed. President Manning was the most disturbed, but even he outgrew the darkest shadow and smothered memories and prayers. Every man of those leaders had a stirring part to play in later years, and it is perhaps fortunate that this is so. For little more than a twelfth month afterward, Captain Whipple led the mob who burnt the revenue ship Gaspy. And in this bold act, we may trace one step in the blotting out of unwholesome images. There was delivered to the widow of Joseph Kerwin a sealed leaden coffin of curious design, obviously found ready on the spot when needed, in which she was told her husband's body lay. He had, it was explained, been killed in a customs battle, about which it was not politic to give details. More than this, no tongue ever uttered of Joseph Kerwin's end, and Charles Ward had only a single hint therewith to construct a theory. The hint was the merest thread, a shaking underscoring of a passage in Jedediah Orne's confiscated letter to Kerwin, as partially copied in Ezra Whedon's handwriting. The copy was found in the possession of Smith's descendants, and we are left to decide whether Whedon gave it to his companion after the end, as a moot clue to the abnormality which had occurred, or whether, as is more probable, Smith had it before, and added the underscoring himself from what he had managed to extract from his friend and adroit cross-questioning. The underlying passage is merely this. I say to you again, do not call up any that you cannot put down, by the which I mean, any that can turn, call somewhat against you, whereby your powerfulest devices may not be of use. Ask of the lesser, lest the greater shall not wish to answer, and shall command more than you. In the light of this passage, and reflecting on what last unmentionable allies a beaten man might try to summon in his direst extremity. Charles Ward may well have wondered whether any citizen of Providence killed Joseph Kerwin. The deliberate effacement of every memory of the dead man of Providence life and annals was vastly aided by the influence of the raiding leaders. They had not at first meant to be so thorough, and had allowed the widow and her father and child to remain in ignorance of the true conditions. But Captain Tillinghast was an astute man, and soon uncovered enough rumors to wet his heart and cause him to demand that his daughter and granddaughter change their name, burnt the library of all remaining papers, and chiseled the inscription from the stone slab above Joseph Kerwin's grave. He knew Captain Whipple well, and had probably extracted more hints from that bluff mariner than anyone else ever gained respecting the end of the accursed sorcerer. From that time, the obliteration of Kerwin's memory became increasingly rigid extending at last by common consent even to the town records and files of the Gazette, and in extent only to the fate of that sinful uh, King Rosinar and Lord Dunsany's tale, whom the gods decided must not only cease to be, but must cease ever to have been. Mrs. Tillinghast, as the widow became known after 1772, sold the house in Olney Court and resided with her father in Powers Lane until her death in 1817. The farm at Patuxet, shunned by every living soul, remained to molder through the years. 
and seemed to decay with unaccountable rapidity. By 1780, only the stone and brick only the stone and brickwork were standing. And by 1800, even these had fallen into shapeless heaps. None ventured to pierce the tangled shrubbery on the riverbank behind, which the hillside door may have lain, nor did any try to frame a definite image of the scenes amidst which Kerwin departed from the horrors he had wrought. Only robust old Captain Whipple was heard by alert listeners to mutter once in a while to himself, Pox on that thing. Pox on that, but he had no business to laugh while he screamed. It was as though the damn thing was up at his sleeve. For half a crown, I'd burn down his house. And that is Chapter 6 of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft in our continuing series, The House on the Corner. Once again, we want to thank you all for joining us here at the PG. There is a link in the show notes to our Patreon page if you are interested in becoming part of our Patuxent General family. If you'd like to reach out with any questions or suggestions or, dare I say, a ghost story, our email is jess at patuxentgeneral.com. Until we meet again, please, let's try to reach out to each other. Many hands make light work. Stay safe, and we'll meet you back here at the Patuxent General. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxent.